All right, welcome everyone to another episode of One of Two Hundred, the New Zealand International Politics Podcast. Uh, I am very excited about uh, this week's uh, uh, interview show uh, because we have a, a very great guest who we were not able to get the last time that we tried to get him on. Unfortunately, things didn't work out, but uh, it was Did all I get for the sick? best. Did I have COVID? I, I can't I remember. I, COVID, right? I, yeah, I, I, I can't remember. I was basically wrecked for a month. Like I, I got oh, Delta. God. It was horrible. I was really wrecked. But yeah. apparently, I was I was I was looking online. Apparently, like long COVID symptoms are much less likely to happen if you like just sit. And I basically huh. just sat for like four to five weeks. See, I did and not I didn't know really that. Really tried to work. Yeah. yeah. So like uh, my laziness paid off as it always does. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I had Omicron uh, maybe a month and a half ago. Um, obviously the less bad than Delta. Um, but I definitely, usually when I get sick, I'm like, I'm just going to continue to live my life as, as usual, aside from getting people, uh, also sick. Uh, in this case, I was like, no, I actually will, uh, uh take it easy and just sleep for about, you know, uh, 20 hours a day. Uh, and, and it was, it was a lot better, I gotta say, than, than trying to just sort of force my way through. Uh, the, yeah. the voice you're hearing, by the way, uh, the listeners out there, uh, talking to me is, is Daniel Bessner. Um, host of the uh, American Prestige uh, podcast um, and a host host of other titles, uh, but for me that that is his, uh, his his greatest achievement. I really think the podcast is fantastic. Anyone out there, you know, if you're uh, from a left wing perspective, anything else, if you want to get a sense of what is going on in the world and, and how to how to uh, interpret what's going on, I really feel like American Prestige and and um, uh, FX. Uh, the Substack that that uh, uh, your, your yeah, partner just runs. Foreign Exchanges. My yeah. co-host Eric Davison runs a Substack called Foreign Exchanges. It's really the best foreign affairs news out there, and it's not even close. Yeah, I, I think both these things are really essential. Uh, like I said, for anyone of any perspective uh, to figure out what is going on in the world. But in this case, uh, we are going to be talking specifically about kind of the left and uh, the relationship that the left has or should have to the philosophy of realism, uh, which, you know, it's interesting because uh, growing up, in my mind, realism was always kind of the more cold, hard-headed, you know, emotionless, uh, one would say even immoral and ruthless kind of uh, policy. Uh, but in, to some extent, it's kind of gotten a little more favor uh, among the left, I guess, maybe in the last some number of years, or at least, you know, maybe that, that's just something I, I've uh, perceived. Um, at the same time, being felt. <laughs> what was that? My influence is being felt. <laughs> right. Well, but then at the same time, right now with the war in Ukraine, uh, where a lot of realist arguments have been kind of made to try and explain the conflict and to try and come to some sort of way that it can end, uh, it's got a lot of pushback from from the mainstream uh, as people like John Mearsheimer, who's kind of, the, I guess, the to the preeminent realist uh, uh, of, of our era. Uh, he kind of has become this uh, punching bag for the establishment. Uh, and so sort of putting out. Pro- yeah, he was uh, he got the Chotner treatment. Uh, <laughs> That's- uh, I, I, I have so much to say about uh, Isaac Chotner, but uh, I guess we could leave that for another time. <laughs> well, you know, hey, if you want to if you want to start a beef here, right on one of 200 that's no a he started a beef with me i really? he like retweeted and like a, a like also he retweeted me with something like i really know about like like mm. mid-century politics and he like was like oh look at this moron or something like that it's just like oh Isaac, that's not quite as like um 
uh, uh, sophisticated and, and erudite as his usual interrogation technique is, where he kind of dismantles you by your own logic. In this case, it's just like, you, <laughs> you moron. Well, his problem is that he falls into the Habermasian trap, a trap where he thinks that this is this matters. The whole point right. of the last 40 years is that facts and logic don't matter. <laughs> you know, this, it's sort of like the liberal Habermasian fantasy about rational exchange in the public sphere will eventually lead to some sort of transcendence, you know, some sort of reaching a conclusion. And that's the premise of his interviews about like beating people with facts and logic. But guess mm. what, Isaac? It doesn't matter. <laughs> and suddenly in the last six years, uh, I think it's mattered uh, uh, far less than in the Well, it's period. just like now, now the subtext is text. That's the difference. Yeah. I think that that subtext was always extant. Um, for at least since 1945, since World War II, but now it's just like first time is tragedy, second time is farce, right? Where now it's Trump, you know, mm -hmm. some uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, okay, let, let's move past uh, the Isaac Chotner uh, bashing. Uh, as, as much as I love to start some uh, controversy uh, on this episode, Let, let's begin with really something very easy because there's people who really listen to this who probably uh, don't know what the hell we're talking about. So can you give us an outline of what realism is for, for people who aren't familiar? And I guess... Um, why is it, uh, before we get into some of the, the, the points about it that, that we can maybe learn from, just give us a brief sense of what is it that's made it so attractive uh, to people, uh, you know, some of the left and uh, in, in, in say the last, I don't know, some number of years or so decade. Sure. So the, the traditional story of realism is that it's a, a product of the 1930s. And I still think there's a lot true to that story. But before we get into that, I just want to say that a new book came out by a historian named Matthew Spector titled The Atlantic Realists. Uh, and he actually traces sort of the origins of what might be termed a proto-realism to the imperial competition between Germany and the United States that took place in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So he very clearly traces realism to the prerogatives of empire. Um, so I just wanted to highlight that. But but the, I would say that is true, but realism doesn't become a coherent intellectual philosophy or intellectual approach until the late 1940s. And it's really embodied and instantiated in a book by the Jewish-German emigre Hans Morgenthau, who wrote uh, two very influential books. Uh, one was released in 1946, I believe, and it um, emerged from a series of new school lectures. And that book is called Scientific Man versus Power Politics. Um, and in that book, Morgenthau essentially argues that is, it is a liberal fantasy uh, to believe that you will be able to manage international relations or international politics, that, that things like science, things like rational management, um, things that emerged uh, in, in the project of people like Woodrow Wilson, who tried to use political science to basically order international affairs, were doomed to fail because politics was not something that was rational in its in its. Um, and it at its core that, that at its core it was ultimately about power so scientific man versus power politics the title of the book uh, guess who wins that battle it's power politics so so it begins with i would say um a philosophical critique of liberalism um and that critique really comes from what is perceived by people like hans morgenthau but other people um the man i wrote my first book about democracy and exiles the title of the book a man named hans speyer who was one of the major figures at the the rand corporation which was the first think tank in modern history people like them oftentimes german jewish emigres 
really the founders of realism were German Jewish emigres. Um, Speyer actually wasn't Jewish, but uh, German emigres, let's say, um, were, were very disheartened by the 1930s. Um, oftentimes they were trained as lawyers. Uh, Morgenthau was a lawyer. Um, Speyer was a sociologist, but he exists in that world. Uh, because the beginning, the, the promise of, of the first half of the 20th century was that human reason would be able to tame power politics. And, and probably the, the most important instantiation of that is the League of Nations um, and the, the advent of a serious form of international law, which had been going for centuries and really got off the ground in the middle of the 19th century, which becomes a bigger thing after World War I, after the conflagration of World War I, international law and the League of Nations in particular become very important. And the problem, of course, was that neither international law nor the League of Nations prevented the rise of Hitler, the rise of Mussolini, the expansion of Imperial Japan, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a gigantic disillusionment with liberal approaches to international relations that begins in the 1930s and reaches its apotheosis in World War II. Um, so Morgenthau poses this critique in 1946, right after World War II, even though the lectures, I believe, are given during World War II itself, which is, says, listen, power politics is what really matters. Uh, and then in 1948, he publishes a, really a magnum opus, one of the major books of the 20th century. It's one of the books that will be read in a thousand years, like not many books you can say that about. Um, but it's a, it's an a intellectual achievement on the level of like the Peloponnesian War, you know, the, on the origin of species, um, uh, civilization and its discontent intense, a major, major work called Politics Among Nations, where he really tries to um, arrive at the quote unquote laws of international relations what policymakers need to know in order to make wise foreign policies. Uh, and the core belief of uh, realism, at least in, in this Morgenthau form, uh, is that humans have what he calls an animus do dominandi, or don't, I, I don't know the Latin, it's animus dominandi or dominandi, I forget, I think it's dominandi, which really is a will to dominate. And because human nature is defined by a will to dominate, there's uh, a tendency of states to expand, there's a tendency of of states to focus on their security. Um, and so you need to understand this basic fact of international relations if you want to make good policy. Uh, so that's the core insight of the book, um, which of course, you know, there's there's uh, significant antecedents in people like Hobbes. Um, you could, I believe you could also see it in, in, in people like Augustine. I think that was also a, an influence on Morgenthau, but that's the basic point. Uh, and that comes to form the core of what is called classical realism. Now, at this point in time, the middle of the 20th century in the United States, and particularly in the American Academy, um, classical realism really helps found the discipline of international relations. International relations is really linked to classical realism. So it's, it's the founding doctrine of the subdiscipline of political science called international relations. Um, but over the course of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the American Academy is hit by a, a new trend in intellectual, uh, a new intellectual approach focused much more on quantification and modeling. Um, there's a variety of reasons for this. I mean, in the United States itself, there's always been a fetishization of quantification and models. I would point pe to, uh, people toward Theodore Porter's book, Trust in Numbers, which really goes through this. Um, so over the course of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, a man named Kenneth Waltz, um, who, who uh, basically emerges as, after Morgenthau, the most important realist thinker, develops a strand of realist thinking called neorealism. So just to repeat for people, it's a little bit complicated. Uh, Morgenthau is classical realism, 
and Kenneth Waltz is neorealism. So what distinguishes neorealism from classical realism is that if you look at politics among nations, it's like this gigantic magnum opus. Um, Waltz's major book, Theory of International Politics, is released in 1979, and it's much it's a much more narrow book. Uh, and it basically tries to arrive at what is called a parsimonious theory of international relations, you know, a, a small theory that could explain a lot. And Waltz's major insight, and this is actually evident in Morgenthau, his major insight, but he basically um, makes it the major insight of international relations, is that the fact of international anarchy, that is the fact that there is no body above the level of the nation state able to legitimately coordinate things, like the, he doesn't think the United Nations is that body, and he's right, it's not. But the fact of international anarchy means that war is endemic to human life. Um, so what's interesting about uh, Waltz is that you don't actually need human beings in Waltz's theory of international relations. It's the system itself. It's the fact of international anarchy that um, leads to war. And so implicit in that, of course, is that the only re way that we'll be able to overcome war is if international anarchy is solved. Uh, international anarchy could be solved in various ways. Um, it could be solved by a hegemon like the United States taking over everything. It could be solved by a more democratic world state. But the question is, but the important thing to realize is that if international anarchy continues to exist, there is going to be um, war. Uh, then the next major uh, realist thinker is uh, uh, John Mersheimer, who you mentioned already, who develops a theory called offensive realism, which is basically a form of neorealism. And it, it emphasizes um, different elements, but it's really a form of neorealism. Uh, and there's other variants of realism. There's defensive realism. There's neoclassical realism. But the big ones you need to know are classical realism and neorealism and understand that Mersheimer is himself um, advocating a species of neorealism, which is also called structural realism, because it is focusing on the structure of the international system. So that is the potted history of realism. Um, and if anyone wants to know more, I would point them to um, a couple of books. I would point them to Nicolas Guillot's uh, G-U-I-L-H-O-T's book, After the Enlightenment, which is the major book on, uh, on realism. And actually, uh, Nicolas, I believe, sixth chapter in that book emerges from an essay that he and I co-wrote in International Security titled When Realism Waltzed Off, which explains the transition from from classical to neorealism um, in, in terms of liberal ideology. But yeah, th that's basically realism in a nutshell. Well, yeah, that's, that's a brilliant history and a great explanation. And, and the, the, the key thing I think for us to, I guess, uh, begin this, uh, the, the, this discussion is uh, take away that original kind of founding idea of, of kind of the nature of, of, of what human beings are like and, and what drives us and, and, and what we want. Take away that. Uh, and I think it is a key insight that of course, we do live in an anarchic world order. Uh, as you say, the UN is not really a democratic uh, body that, that, that uh, is able to kind of sort out conflicts between states. It's, it's obviously rigged, it's set up to give a small handful of states an inordinate amount of power, which we've seen, uh, we've been kind of reminded of, or people have been reminded of uh, with this war in Ukraine, the way that Russia has been able to uh, block certain things from being passed. And of course, international law, you know, it's, it's a good idea, of course, but the way it's applied in reality is very uh, selective and it tends to be applied only against the powerful, against losing states. It's never against uh, countries like the United States or even, even Russia uh, uh, or, or others. Um, and I think that's a key thing to, 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 to go from, because given this reality, 
in this situation, in this context, what are parts of realism that, that say for, for us, whether it's we're on the left or just as kind of critical thinking human beings, what are, are, are parts of it that we can learn from and even try to adopt that are actually useful um, for, for making our way uh, through this anarchic world order? I think it's actually really simple, and, and it's a simple insight, which is that power is the fundamental currency of international relations. Uh, at, at its core, at its base, if you will, to borrow Marxist terminology, international relations is ultimately about power. Now, the problem, let's get into the problems with realism. Uh, the problem well, actually, realism, Before we get into the problems, before we get into the problems, uh, the, the, okay. the power, uh, let's just uh, stay a little bit on this, on this power issue, right? Because, okay, we, we've had a lot of talk in the last, uh, you know, what, how long has it been? Three, four months uh, since the war in Ukraine. You know, some of these concepts, a balance of power, spheres of influence. On the surface, these are kind of, these are liberal concepts. I mean, they, they plainly are. You know, the first one, balance of power, suggests that basically it's strategic and security concerns of large states that should kind of drive decision-making, uh, not things like international law or, you know, what's what's just. Uh, and spheres of influence, I kind of suggest that there's parts of the world, whole whole segments of, 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 of territory, countries, that are basically uh, are or, or should be under the kind of, control uh, of, 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 you know, uh, nearby great powers and that actually it's the, the, the concerns of those great powers that's most important and the agency of these smaller states isn't really that important. So it's, these are liberal concepts, but, um, you know, in the context, again, of this anarchic world order, why do we have to pay attention to these things uh, or, or even abide by them? Uh, are there some things about them that actually are, are useful for navigating these really treacherous waters uh, of, of, of uh, geopolitics? When you say these things, you mean realism, like realist understandings? Yeah, yeah, basically. Um, because I, I think that it explains a lot of international relations. Like, so take take the UN. Right. Uh, why doesn't the UN work because of the Security Council? What does the Security Council reflect? The actual power distribution. Well, not, not anymore. It is reflected the actual power distribution in 1945. But now it's essentially the US, uh, its two little buddies, Britain and France uh, and, and Russia and China. And the reason those those people have veto power over essentially anything the UN could do or most of the things that the UN could do is because it reflects power relationships. So um, I think that that. Um, Sometimes on the left, we, we tend to overemphasize ideology or we tend to overemphasize other factors when really power is the fundamental feature of international exchange. Um, it, 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 it interacts, I would say, um, with the capitalist political economy in interesting ways. Um, and I think one actual paucity, uh, one actual lacuna rather that we have on the left is that we don't have a great understanding about how these two spheres interact. Um, oftentimes we, we reduce things to the political economy um, when, when we're talking at the international level and we don't take power by this term, I really just mean military power to power, the power to kill uh, into account. I mean, you even think about the, the great Panitch Gindin book on, on what is it, making global capitalism. I forget the title, the exact title, but I think on, on one of the first few pages, and I'm, I apologize if I'm wrong, but they say something like, we're going to bracket military power, right? But to fully understand the system, I think they have to go together. And realism provides a decent, probably the pretty good, the, probably the best mainstream place to, to start when one is trying to think in large macro terms about international relations.
Mm. Well, let me ask you one more question before we, we get into some of the, the, the criticisms of, of realism, which is during the Cold War, for instance, how did, how did realist ideas, things like you know, this idea of maintaining the, or navigating through balance of power, how did they play a role in preventing things from kind of spiraling out of control into, into you know, uh, World War, Third World War, even just nuclear catastrophe? Well, I actually think for most of post-war history, realism didn't really have an effect on policy. Uh, when you look at like the actual decisions of policymakers, they're not like thinking in the terms of realism. They're not thinking about international anarchy. Probably the closest that it came, and there's debate about this, but I think he, he was probably a realist at heart is Henry Kissinger and detente. Um, Kissinger really was into detente because he's just like the United States and Soviet Union are two great powers. Neither of them is going to win. The struggle that we've been waging over the course of the 50s and the 60s has wasted a lot of resources on basically minor wars. Um, so let's just reach detente and we'll, we'll sort of like give each other our various spheres of influence, which... It's kind of a real. I mean, there's there's a long history of sphere of influence of, of spheres of influence dating back well before realism, but it becomes like a, an a, an important part of the realist approach. Um, and so I think that that moment of the 1970s and detente, which is a policy that I think was good. It was good to have detente with the Soviet Union, not to excuse. Kissinger's many, many, many crimes, particularly the bombings of Cambodia and Laos um, that occurred during the Vietnam War. Um, but I do think detente was a good policy, and I do think it was a policy that was legitimately influenced by realism. And beyond that, our realists standing outside of power have, have generally been good on critiquing um, American imperial misadventures, particularly in places like Iraq. A lot of realists were against the Iraq war. The problem is that today, a lot of realists want the United States to fight China, <laughs> which is not something that I'm in favor of, um, but and that, that probably emerges from the problems of realism. Uh, but um, that's what I'd say about US foreign well, and, and George Kennan was a, a realist, right, as well? I don't know if he considered himself- George that, Kennan he's goes through that. various- he yeah. goes through various permutations over time. I think he arrives at a broadly realist position, which is that the United States is not going to be able to dominate the world in the way that it wants to, and it should not try. Um, and, and so w one thing that I want to underline is that realism is really, an, uh, it's a very reactionary ideology in that it rejects the enlightenment notion that reason could be used to advance human affairs. Now, I think that that ideology, there's, a, there's, a, there's some truth there. Like, I think like the progressive fantasy, like, I mean, uh, progressive capital P, like literal progressive movement in the technical sense, uh, Woodrow Wilson era progressivism, the fantasy that you would be able to manage international affairs is I think it was wrong. You know, the realist critique of that is right. You, you cannot manage things in that way. And I think like on the left, we should learn from some insights that uh, people on the right were able to advocate. You know, I think that, um, when Mod Mises was writing in the 30s, uh, you know, it was very difficult to centrally plan. You know, uh, I think central planning is a good idea. And particularly now, I think you're actually able to centrally plan with things like Amazon and algorithms. We've actually, you know, capitalism has developed those things. But, you know, the, the critique of central planning um, being a critique of managing unmanageable human affairs is not something to dismiss out of hand. Um, I think history, I think you have to take the historical perspective and see like where those, that there might've been a, a little insight there that we on the left would be wise to consider at least. Well, okay. So we've gone through some of the, the insights that, that we can, we should uh, take away from realism, but you've obviously uh, also critiqued uh, uh, realism and, and Mirshan in particular. And so I, uh, very broadly, uh, what should we uh, reject from the, uh, the, the realist framework? Sure. 
before I go into it, um, if people want a detailed um, explanation of what I'm basically about to say, I would point them to a piece I wrote for the Boston Review called Foreign Policy for the 21st Century, where I criticize Mersheimer's book on liberalism, as well as Michael Walzer's book on, on foreign policy for the left, which should be really dubbed foreign policy for the left liberals, which I think is very, very, very misguided. The biggest problem with realism is that it is too linked to its historical origin moments. It, it, it is way too... Um, pessimistic about the capacity of humans to, to use reason to manipulate the world or to, to, to move beyond power. Um, for realists like Mersheimer, it's always 1939. You know, you always have to look out for a Hitler. Um, and I think the problem is, is that Hitlers are actually relatively rare, particularly in the 21st century. So the problem with realism is that it assumes a sphere of international relations that I think is atavistic and that human beings are actually able to work, are actually primarily social and are actually able to work together to move beyond these power differentials and create a better society. I, I think human, I'm not anti-enlightenment. You know, Marx was not anti-enlightenment. Marx, more than anyone, believed that human reason could sort of divine the deep structures of human, human affairs. I'm a bit skeptical about this sort of like scientific elements of Marx. He very much was a 19th century person, um, as we all are linked to our moments. But I think the fundamental insight is that reason could be used to make the world better is correct. Realists at, at a basic level don't think that. They are much, much more embedded in a tragic understanding of human nature and human history. That I think there is truth there that has, that has been how things have proceeded, but it's not how things necessarily need to proceed. And I think mm. that it's that necessarily that is my biggest critique of realism. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because realists talk about how kind of a competition between great states is, is, is inevitable and it's a kind of structuring uh, 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 element of, of I guess, uh, geopolitics, which is, of course, what drives this kind of push for confrontation with China. It's very funny to me that Miyashima gets just <laughs> attacked relentlessly for I think having a fairly sensible uh, position on, on on the war in Ukraine and, and you know the policy towards Russia, but people have no problem with his uh, uh, argument that basically the U.S. needs to to act to sort of contain China, uh, which I think is um, I mean it's it's that's just as dangerous as as sort of taking that attack towards Russia. Um, but and just one thing more, Branko. Yeah. Just uh, just uh, I think that that and when actually existing history. Or realists are also like the agent of history is the United States, right? It's the United mm. States that needs to do X or Y. Then that's also problematic. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and you've you've kind of critiqued the the idea of the, the balance of power framework that that you know it, it doesn't the the way that realists kind of uh, put that. Uh, as an explainer, uh, both what, how, how the world works and how it ought to work, it, it doesn't, it's not quite that clean. That in reality, it's not just that all states and all governments are kind of uh, thinking narrowly on these, this kind of a balance of power framework to, to make decisions. And uh, perhaps another really important critique is that realism is kind of mechanistic. You know, according to realists, China is going to expand because that's what states do. And if you actually want to understand the foreign policy like China's, you need to examine a million factors, you know, domestic political culture, Xi Jinping, uh, you know, what China has actually done in the world, its various goals, its ideology, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and realists just black box all of that. They're just like not important. And that's just not going to get you very far in actual international relations thinking. It's a good basis. 
you know, just like the base superstructure model is a good basis for how things work. But once you're getting into actual history, things get a lot more complicated incredibly quickly. Yeah, and and you kind of mentioned the fact that you you know, you, you uh, in in that piece uh, for the Boston Review, you you look at the Vietnam War, uh, which I you know I've, I've heard people like Stephen Walt talk about Vietnam, and you know, in sort of security interest uh, uh, style uh, analysis, right? That the 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 reason why uh, the U.S. ended up in this horrible war for for, for a decade is because uh, it, it was it was out of security concerns, um, and they'd made this horrible horrible mistake, and that that's what did it. As you point out, uh, I mean that was part of it for sure. There was obviously a very hawkish element uh, uh, within the U.S. government within the U.S. elite who were who were paranoid and terrified of kind of a, a communist takeover. But the the man who made the decision, also uh, Johnson, President Lyndon Johnson was very much uh, driven by domestic political concerns. And the, the, that's the reason we fought Vietnam. Fred yeah. Logeval has convinced me on this. Um, the book Choosing War, he like painstakingly goes through 64, 65. The reason that Johnson escalated was because of domestic politics. So realism doesn't get you that answer. It doesn't even approach that answer. And that's just, that's a problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is why uh, history is the best discipline. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, I do uh, think it's interesting. Like it, it, you do, you do see since two thousand and eight a return to historians as being the major public intellectuals. Even mm -hmm. look at Jacobin, Boscar. Boscar was it was trained as a historian. You know, Matt Carp, myself, a lot of other people were trained as historians, and I because it provides you an actual knowledge into the world. Realism provides a useful framework that is a good starting point, but it doesn't get you very far. Yeah, well, you're not going to get any uh, kind of argument from me on that point. Um, uh, just to, to to go back to some of uh, the, these critiques, um, as you say, the, the the kind of foundational basis of, of, of realism is the idea that, that states are going to end up in competition with each other. That there's a, a, a need to dominate, especially in an anarchical order where where there isn't a sort of neutral uh, body that stands outside and is able to adjudicate conflicts. Um, yet at the same time, you know, Stephen Walt, for instance, has, has, he wrote this piece recently about how, uh, you know, uh, everyone's bashing realism and, and why is that? Why is it that it's kind of fallen out of favor? Um, and he says, you know, well, you know, realists do believe in cooperation. And I'm, and I'm sure that, you know, they, they do believe that that's a good idea. But is international cooperation uh, possible within the kind of framework that they have uh, that they have set out? Or is that a contradictory idea? No, I mean, I think the problem is, is that once realists start talking about policy, they, they're not realists anymore. And I think the biggest example of that is Walton Mersheimer's book, The Israel Lobby, which is all about domestic politics. So the problem that realism has confronted since the end of the Cold War in particular is that their framework doesn't really explain very much. So they wind up going into domestic politics. So, I mean, uh, realists themselves have different policy positions, but realism as a philosophy, I don't think necessarily leads. It would lead to things like alliance systems, right? That form of international cooperation, but it wouldn't lead to the form of international cooperation that would allow us to transcend realism itself. It's actually interesting when you look at the first generation of realists, particularly Hans Morgenthau, by the 1960s, he begins advocating a world state, right? That's his, his solution to international anarchy and, and basically the problem posed by realism is a world state. And so this is where a lot of these realists wind up, wind up at the end of their careers is some form of world stateness. 
you know, which makes sense. I mean, that is the most logical solution to, to the, the, the fundamental yeah. problem that they're identifying. Um, but of course, I mean, I imagine that many of them would have very uh, pessimistic ideas about how possible that is, that, that there would always be one or another state trying to dominate whatever uh, a global government uh, was set up. Oh, obviously, that happened with the United Nations. Why would it be different uh, this time around, right? Right. right. Yeah. Uh, so it's primarily then a philosophical position. Yeah. And I think um, like a realist, like Mor uh, Mersheimer is just very much a product of his time. He's, I mean, he's very much like an American and he believes that like the United States is the agent of history. Right. So, yeah, in yeah. some like fundamental way. Yeah. Yeah. There's certainly, uh, yeah, I, I feel like uh, when I've heard him talk about China, um, that there is a kind of an underlying assumption that, you know, China's the bad guy. Uh, and, you know, they're going to be wrong. Obviously, China does a lot of things that are <laughs> not great and that I disagree with. And, and I think uh, all of us would disagree with. But of course, there's no recognition of some of the terrible things that the United States has done uh, when it, it was the, well, both when it was just a singular kind of global hegemon and, and before when it was uh, locked in competition with the Soviet Union. Uh, the United States has done, uh, I should say the US government has done tremendous damage to the world. So, you know, it's, it's, but, but I do feel like with his analysis, there's the assumption that, you know, the West and the US are kind of the good guys. Uh, China's, China's just the bad guy and we have to somehow contain them. Yeah, I mean, he would probably phrase it as like, they're the, the, the best you can do in a bad situation. That would be my guess. Right. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, that because like they've been critical of Iraq and stuff. So yeah, yeah. they're not like naive American exceptionalists. Right. Uh, let me ask you some specific questions because this is a New Zealand-based show, um, and so you know I want to see what what uh, you know in the New Zealand context what we can take away from from this conversation. For instance, New Zealand it's a small state, um, not unlike Ukraine. Uh, we're also kind of caught in the middle of a great power uh, tug of war between China, which is our largest trading partner definitely the most economically important country uh, for New Zealand and the US, which, you know, we have cultural ties, we have certain security and, and, and military ties through the Five Eyes Alliance and that kind of thing. Um, and, and both of these countries, obviously, they exert influence on New Zealand. They, they meddle in different ways and different forms in our politics, um, as well as those of our neighbours. Um, and, and, you know, you would not know this, but there's been a lot of talk lately in, in reaction to uh, US policy, both in Ukraine and, and Asia and, and the Pacific, that New Zealand is increasingly kind of reflexively taking the side of, of Washington and kind of just going along with what Washington wants instead of pursuing what we've been telling ourselves for decades that we have, which is an independent foreign policy that, that we call the shots and we're just sort of navigating these waters. Um, and, and my question is, um, you know, I, I, do, I do agree with that. I do think New Zealand government is increasingly, you know, abandoning any sort of semblance of independence and just kind of siding with the US. Uh, my question to you is, uh, and, and whether, you know, we use a realist framework or anything else for this uh, doesn't really matter, but is this a mistake? for a small state like ours. You know, I, I would imagine Mearsheimer, you know, I can hear him saying, you know, if you're a small state next to a gorilla, right, you gotta, you gotta watch out how you act because the gorilla might, might lash out. But what, what you know, uh, is, is he right uh, in this case uh, for, for New Zealand policy here? 
I mean, you'd have to see what, what happens going forward. I, I imagine if China threatened true economic decoupling with New Zealand, New Zealand would, would change um, what it does. Um, I think what the United States is trying to do is trying to build up its power position there, particularly with AUKUS, you know, the Australian, UK, US agreements. And New Zealand, I, I imagine, is, is supposed to be part of that in some sense. Um, but what should New Zealand do? I, I would say uh, keep its ears to the ground. Um, see what happens, because ultimately the United States, in my opinion, at least, is not going to be able to remain hegemonic in Asia for very much longer. Um, and so it's just, <laughs> Mersheimer's right, New Zealand is a lot closer to China. Um, so it, it, and it, I mean, it depends on what the, 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 the democratic politics of the country, what, what people in New Zealand actually think. I can't speak for them, but I would just be aware of the structural things that are happening. And that's a relative decrease in American power, a relative increase in Chinese power, and the fact that China is a lot closer to Asia than the United States is. It is, in fact, in Asia. So it is going to be much harder for the United States to remain uh, uh, dominant in the region for, I, I think, in 15 years, it's not going to be dominant. It already isn't as dominant as it used to be. Right. Um, well, what about approach like, say, and maybe this is this is a little simplistic, but, you know, Tito's Yugoslavia, for instance, right? Also a country caught between two major powers. Um, and in its case, it kind of adopted the, the you know, the non-aligned position and it sort of played one against the other to some extent and was able to, to, to do it to its, its benefit. It was a, the, the recipient of, I mean, God knows how much uh, aid from the West as, as part of this. I mean, is that kind of a viable approach for a smaller state like New Zealand that's kind of caught uh, in, this, in this tug of war here? Sorry, Brad, what would be the specific approach? Well, to sort of uh, play, you know, both, both states obviously regard New Zealand as a, as a strategically important country right and to use that fact to kind of play one against the other uh for for its benefit yeah that's what states tried to do i mean david angerman has a book about how india did this during the cold war um i forget the exact title of it uh but the price of aid i think uh but yeah i mean that that that's probably the best thing that New Zealand could do. And this is, yeah, it's price of aid. And, and uh, this is something that a lot of states did during the Cold War. So get what you can from both great powers um, in ideally uh, a way that's democratically decided by the people of New Zealand. Yeah. And and try not to get uh, cooed, I guess, in the process uh, by, by one or the other. Yeah. <laughs> not Try not to get. I don't think that's probably unlikely, but yeah, I, yeah. I agree. Try not to get overtaken. <laughs> <laughs> do your best. Um, uh, you, you've written about, uh, in your critique of Mearsheim about not giving up on transformational politics, uh, and falling entirely into this kind of pessimistic worldview, uh, that, that realists adopt. What does that actually look like in, in practice? Uh, you know, in, in a system that, you know, that is anarchic, that is still dominated by the powerful and where the weak have very little, uh, recourse, uh, how, uh, and, and international law isn't really a thing other than just kind of to be used as a, as a pretext for certain things or just to be paid lift service to. How do we keep pushing ideas and how do we actually try and transform uh, the global order? I mean, is it, is it, was it too vast and big a project to, to actually embark on? Um, that's a great question. I think you also have to just take into the realities of people's own individual subjectivities. I mean, so I'm an American citizen. And I think one of the things that's going to be crucial to this is that there can't be a world empire. 
uh, you're not going to get the type of world state that would transcend anarchy with an American empire. I think that's been proven pretty decisively. So the first thing to do would be to just literally reduce the U.S. empire to 750 military bases, the incredible defense spending, things along those lines. Um, so that's something that, you know, as an American citizen, I could help contribute to. Um, there's also just the fact of educating people about the large structural transformations. The idea that I think Mersheimer is, is profoundly mistaken that the United States with enough, with enough gumption will be able to remain hegemonic in East Asia is I just think flat out wrong. So it's also accommodating itself, uh, oneself to, to different structural realities of international relations. Uh, it's also giving up on the project to try to make other states um, into a mirror image of what the United States imagines itself to be. This is something that has failed time and again, and it's certainly going to fail when you're talking about China or Russia, gigantic states that are extraordinarily powerful. Um, so it's uh, it's it's a, it's allowing. Um, at least in the imagination of people who are in the empire, it's allowing other nation states to choose their the form of politics that they wish to abide by, but not allowing that form of politics to get in the way of the form of types of international cooperation that are needed to address things like climate change or pandemics or population uh, population movements that are going to be engendered by climate change and are going to be incredibly destructive to the people who are forced to move because they no longer have access to water and actually dealing with something like that. So I think it's a lot of giving up on the fantasies of the 20th century that have just failed time and again. Uh, okay, well, let me ask you one more question. And this one's uh, a little more complicated. I mean, there's an element of realism that that sounds to me is it, it borders on turning into a self-fulfilling prophecy. We, uh, you know, we we have this pessimistic view of human nature. We have this um, assumption of how states operate in the world uh, in in the particular global order that we have uh, ended up with, uh, and that can sometimes almost be a validation of you know certain uh, bad behavior. Uh, I think that you know the Russia thing is an example of this. I mean, I. I, th I think that U.S. policy towards Russia and Eastern Europe has not been very smart. I, I think that uh, it, it has it is the kind of fundamental context for the war that's going on now. That's not to say that Russia is not to blame. Of course it is. But I do think that the, 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 the lack of, uh, I think, respect towards some of those the, the, the balance of power in Europe and, and towards Russia's security concerns, I think that did play a, a large uh, a role in why this war ended up happening, even as it is primarily Moscow's responsibility. At the same time, you know, uh, as, as a lot of uh, critics have, have said, you know, you don't want to go down, too far down that road where you end up kind of almost, uh, maybe not justifying is the right word, but kind of to some extent validating or even providing the intellectual framework to, to, that, that, that makes that happen, right? So how do, we, how do we stop that from happening? How do we strike that balance? So that last criticism to me is silly. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> it literally has no effect on what Putin does or doesn't do. How are you right. justifying? To, what are you talking about? It's absurd. That to me is just like, political posturing for online points. It is It is not a serious discussion. I totally ignore it. The way that I view it is, is that NATO expansion eastward was obviously one of several factors that helped engender Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, again, it's unfortunate we live in a political culture where obviously I think this is bad. Obviously, it's ultimately Putin's decision. But let me just say that this is bad and it was Putin's decision. Mm. But uh, again, when considering political, political subjectivity, I don't have access to Putin mind. Uh, I can't control policy in Russia, but I can control, at least theoretically, policy in the United States. And 
And I think NATO expansion was a bad idea for a diversity of reasons, not only because it helped engender, you know, uh, made Putin worried about his security, which is not a wild thing for a Russian leader to be worried about from coming from the West, given the, you know, the last hundred, several hundred years of Russian history. Um, but also, like, why is the United States funding European defense at this point? You know, like, like Europe is quite wealthy. But beyond even the money issue, Europeans have a better sense of their security than an American possibly could. I mean, that's and that's just also a fundamental um, precept I have about international relations. People actually living in regions are better able to s decide what they should do than people who are not in regions and do not have much of a stake in them. So given that, I think European defense should be a European thing. Um, so for, for those reasons, I think also as an American, uh, I, I, I would be, I'm very critical of NATO. I don't think it really needs to exist any longer, uh, and that there should be some sort of multinational European military force where Europeans spend and decide what they want to do in their region. That is their responsibility and they should have the sovereignty to do so. Mm. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, for me, right, the, the, the war in Ukraine, the, 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 uh, issue of NATO expansion, it, it's, it's, as you said, it's one of several factors in the sense that there was a legitimate security uh, aspect to it. But then there also was a fact that it fed into this kind of um, uh, Russian nationalism, agreed Russian nationalism that, that had sprung up uh, since the 90s, particularly because of the, the uh, <laughs> what the US did to Russia uh, uh, post-Cold War. Uh, and, and I think it fed particularly into kind of Putin's sense of aggrievedness. Uh, that that you know he felt disrespected that the, the the West never seemed to kind of want to meet him in the middle didn't seem to respect any of the, the lines he drew up um, and all of that kind of became this big perfect storm that that led him to make this this disastrous decision all of that is to say uh, I wonder if you know rather than kind of using really uh, 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 kind of inflexible realist frameworks for thinking about this kind of stuff. Should we just be thinking about how do we put ourselves in the shoes of the, 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 the people, you know, that run other countries, even adversarial countries, and try to take actions, you know, knowing their mindset, knowing what they might do, take actions to prevent them from, from uh, you know, acting in a rash way or acting in a dangerous way, you know, the, the old idea of, of strategic empathy. Is that maybe a, a better way to think about this stuff rather than just these really kind of narrow realist strictures? Absolutely. I think strategic empathy is actually crucial, is absolutely central to any sort of wise foreign policy. It is, is a fundamental basis. And I think broadly more on the left, I think there's a, there's a great project of connecting security and political economy, you know, uh, connecting, lack of a better phrase, realism with Marxism in a, in a way that takes full account of both. Um, and, and tries to understand how the global system actually functions. It's not just political economy, it's not just security. Uh, they both work together, they both cross paths at certain points, diverge at other points, and we just have no sense on the left about those sort of global systemic issues. Yeah, right. Okay, well, uh, that, that was it uh, for this interview, but thank you so much for, for coming in and, and, and laying down some wisdom for us. Uh, do you want to give do, do some shameless self-promotion uh, just before we finish up here? Is there anything uh, besides American Prestige that you want to uh, tell us about that's coming on the horizon? Sure. Um American Prestige, <laughs> subscribe, uh, and, but also I've got uh, a cover story in next month's Harper's. So that's all about US foreign policy and what the United States should do in the world. So if you're interested in that, keep an eye out for that piece. 
Brilliant. Uh, and I know you've been working very hard on that. So uh, I'm sure it's going to be a, a, a scorcher of a piece. Uh, Danny Bessner, thank you so much for, for joining us uh, for another week of, of one of 200. And all your listeners out there, the usual spiel. Uh, if, you, if you liked all this stuff, all the stuff you heard today, you know, share this around, share it to people who you know, don't, don't pay attention to politics, don't know what's going on in the world. Uh, let them kind of benefit from, from uh, Danny's wisdom here and, and, and from the time he's generously given us. Uh, and also maybe go, go, give us some money as well, if you can spare it. Uh, and give, give American Prestige your money too. It's, it's well worth the investment. Um, that is it uh, for another week. See you later. You don't hate